Well, today I have to say I'm very excited about our uh, guest today, uh, Joseph. Am I spelling this right, name right? Badadakro? Badaraco. Badaraco. Yes. So, Joe, we're, we're thrilled to have you here today. I really enjoyed your book, and it really resonated with me because uh, I had once worked uh, for the chairman of Senecor, and I had started something called the uh, Eastern Technology Council. And he insisted that one day a week that I spend do nothing but thinking. He said, that's all I want you to do. I want you to pick one day, maybe Friday, and I just want you to sit around and think about what you're going to do with this organization and reflect about it. I want you to read stuff, but I don't want you to take any phone calls. I don't want you to do any meetings. And I want you to do this one day a week. And I have to say that I, it's been hard to practice since, but I try to, try to do that, try to use a lot of self-reflection um, every single uh, week and a lot of times uh, every single day, try to put a little bit of time away for that. So I think your book is great, very timely, especially in what we're going through right now. So, uh, Joe, first, before we get into your book, tell us a little bit about your expertise and what you teach at Harvard. Sure. Uh, I've been on the faculty at Harvard Business School for more than 30 years now. And over that time, I've taught a number of management courses, strategy courses. I focused in the last 15 years or so on what we call leadership and corporate accountability. And so it's a required course that all first-year students take basic business law, some basic ethical principles, all embedded in management situations. So these are case studies. You've got a manager with a problem. The question is, what should the manager do? But in the back, to an analyze that, you've got to look at the whole business and you've got to think about your values, your ethics, and the basic legal aspects of the situation. And then I've written a bunch of books and I've been chair of the MBA program and some things like that over the years too. Well, congratulations on, on this book. And do you also do consulting as well? Do you have a consulting practice? I don't. Um, I do occasionally give talks. Uh, but um, it's funny. Um, you really consult on an ethics-related issue. You've got to really be immersed in the situation, know the specifics, the people, in some cases the legal issues. And... Uh, an outsider just can't typically swoop in and be very effective in those situations. So typically when I've been asked, I've, I've declined. Well, and those are always touchy issues and usually those ethical issues always come to light after the fact. And then all of a sudden, especially on Wall Street, they threw lots of money at it after, <laughs> the, after all the laws have been broken. And then once everybody forgets about it, then that money dries up and, and the cycle starts all over again. So let's talk about your book. Why did you write this book and what's the significance of it? Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure precisely what triggered writing the book. However, I became aware at some point that I often advise people to reflect, uh, just as your former boss advised you to reflect. A lot of people give this advice, not just at work, from, but from pulpits. They rarely explain what reflection is. They don't say how to do it. And they don't say anything for people who are really busy about how you find time to do it. And so this struck me as a good practical question. How do you do it? 
and kind of an interesting conceptual question as well. I mean, what is reflection different from thinking, et cetera? So I was just kind of intrigued by it and started down the path that ultimately led to the book. So how do, how do you define reflection? Well, it's basically stepping back and trying to think and to trying to really grasp what's important. And that can be important about one of three things. And I lay these out in depth in the book. Uh, and by the way, these three things aren't three things that I made up. Part of what I did for the book was read a lot of classics on reflection going back centuries. So there's three basically th things that you really try to grasp when you reflect. One, it has to do with what you're experiencing. What's going on around you? What's going on inside you? Both of those. What's, hap what's happening now that's really important? The second thing that you try to grasp is the complexity of a problem. It's not about experience, it's about understanding. And the third thing you try, can try to grasp when you're reflecting, and you can do these things separately, you can do them in sequence, but they're fundamentally separate. The third thing you're often trying to grasp is what should you do? What's the appropriate action in this situation? So you've got experience, you've got understanding, and you've got action. Those are the three big focuses of stepping back and trying to think deeply. I think that's the problem when people don't think deeply and they just react uh, to the situation, yeah. then it's a disaster. And we see that the highest levels in this particular country uh, when people just react without giving some thought to it. Um, you talk about uh, mosaic. What is mosaic reflection? And, and, yeah. and later in the book, you talk about Marcus Aurelius and his writings. And, and I thought that was very interesting. So talk about what mosaic sure. reflection is. Let me go back one step. So I interviewed about 100 people for this book. And these were typically managers and businesses at all levels, entry level to, to prominent CEOs. And a lot of the people came in at the beginning of the interview and said, uh, I'm sorry, I'm really not the right person. I don't spend much time or any time reflecting. And as we talked more, I realized they had a definition of reflection. It's sort of the classic version, which is an extended period of time, like your day off, in tranquility, no distraction by yourself. And of course, they didn't have time to do this, so they thought they didn't reflect. As we talked more, and we talked for about an hour initially, and in about half the cases, I talked to them again for another half hour to an hour, about two weeks later. I discovered they were doing lots of reflecting in short periods of time, often in unique patterns they had worked out for themselves. And that's what I meant by a mosaic. It's, it's you know, a mosaic is a small pieces of glass or tile uh, combined in a unique way. And their reflection really was on this unique basis, a little time here, a little time there. It kind of cohered. It was not going up to the mountain or going away for a long retreat. So that's, that's the essence of mosaic as I see it. You know, I, I think in my boss's case, I was 29. I think he wanted me to pause, which we're going to talk yeah. about that later. I think he felt like I rushed too fast into things because I felt like everything needed to be done yesterday. And I think he, he wanted me to develop the discipline of reflection and taking the time to think things through before uh, jumping into them. Even if, they, even if it was right, I think that's well, what he was looking for. 
Mark, you know, you're, you're, you said you're an entrepreneur and uh, there's a quotation in the book right at the beginning that I like a lot. It's one of the people I interviewed and learned a lot from. He started a uh, venture capital firm. So he was on the board of a lot of these little companies and uh, he was advising the CEOs. And what he said was he tells all the CEOs that if he I like it ever well. finds them, goes into their office and finds them with their feet up on their desk, looking out the window, he says, I'm going to double your salary. And what he was saying is that you're just busy putting out fires and you do need to pause. You don't need to go on a retreat. You can do it in your office briefly, but it's really important to do it. And that idea, I'll double your salary if I catch you looking out the window. That's really what I'm talking about with this mosaic reflection, finding and using these fragments of time. Yeah, I, I think it's super important. What star CEOs by their company's performance do you think spend time reflecting? Do you get a handle on that? Just looking uh, at these guys and saying, uh, who does that? I mean, Elon Musk must do a lot of reflecting considering the kinds of stuff he comes up with. Well, or the guys you interviewed, because you interviewed a, a lot of well-known people for this book. Yeah, I learned a little bit from them about how they did it. It's hard for me to speculate about others, but you mentioned Musk. I was thinking initially of Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, yeah. uh, who, when you hear him interviewed, uh, and I actually had the very first time I taught, this is uh, 1981, he was a student in the strategy class I was teaching. And what I remember about Jamie then was that uh, he often didn't seem to be paying attention in class. He was kind of looking somewhere else. But when you called on him, he was very articulate, feet on the ground, and usually said something that was a little bit different from what everybody else was saying, but it was important. And so I don't know exactly how they do it, but they do find time to sort of as I use in the title of the book, to step back and look at things from a fresh perspective. Uh, I think Musk is one of the geniuses of recent business history. Let's put aside his tweets. Yep. They said SpaceX, an American car company, it's, a, it's stunning. And he's still a young guy. Uh, but you've got, you've got to basically pull yourself out of the, if you're Musk or Jamie Dimon, you can work 400 hours a week and you still wouldn't do everything. So you've really got to pull yourself back from that, at least briefly. And my hunch is those guys do it. I can just really briefly, I'll tell you about some of the people I interviewed. So one was former CEO of a big uh, giant retailer. Uh, he said when, his management team finished with a problem. He had to make a decision and he wasn't sure what to do. He said he'd close his office door for about 15 minutes. He'd put on some of his favorite Broadway show tunes. And the idea here was just to kind of get everything out of his head and then come back and look at the problem again and, and try to see it fresh. And I think that's what these successful people somehow do pull back enough, get a fresh view, and then they re-immerse themselves. Uh, what are the principles of reflection? And, and please provide examples on how to use them effectively. Sure. Uh, now, here is where 
uh, you're not getting my views. Uh, you're simply getting my interpretation of the reading I did and sort of the classics of reflection. You mentioned Marcus Aurelius. So he was a Roman emperor. So we're going back almost 2000 years. He was running the empire and he spent the last 10 years of his life uh, fighting against Germanic invaders in the North. So he, you know, he's living in a tent, you know, no electricity. He wrote this little book at night. It was, wasn't a book, it was just a personal journal. Uh, it's come to be called Meditations. Uh, his initial thought about it was it should be called To Himself. He wrote it on parchment. Somehow this sort of miraculously survived. But he was sort of an exemplar of mosaic reflection. He didn't have a lot of time. Every couple nights wrote a paragraph or two. That was it. But the key thing, if you don't have much time, is spending the time well. And in the book, I describe three basic approaches with deep roots in history. One I call downshifting. Uh, the classic word for it is contemplation. The idea is that you sort of slow down your brain. And the book describes a number of ways in which people I interviewed did this. You slow down your brain. And you're not just processing problems, people, checking things off your to-do list, which is the only way you can get stuff done and the way we spend most of our time. But you stop that for a while. And this is the way of getting a clear sense of what's going on around you that you might be missing, what's going on inside you, in your head, your heart, whatever it is, might be something important in there, but it's kind of suppressed because you are super busy. So fundamental approach number one, contemplation or downshifting. Number two is called pondering. And the term actually has connections to longstanding religious traditions. The idea is you take a problem or a situation and you look at it consciously. You make an effort to look at it from a variety of different perspectives. And that's overriding another natural habit that I think we all have, which is you get a problem, you try to get the solution. If it's a familiar problem, you think, I've been there before, this is what we do. This is saying, wait, pause, consciously try to see if there are things you're missing, if you sort of turn the thing around in your mind. The third form, again, centuries old, is what I called measuring up. And that's pausing to say, are you meeting, not just in the sense of processing your work, but in the longer term, are you meeting the standards that other people expect you to meet? And are you meeting your own standards? And these are the three classic ways of, of reflecting. And if you have just a little bit of time, I think it's, or if you have more time, what's valuable is making sure you are trying to do one of them and staying focused on it and trying to do it well. Uh, and we're gonna get more into each of those as we talk further here. Can a leader successfully lead without practicing reflection? Well, I'd basically say no. Uh, I guess there are some people with brilliant unconscious instincts and they just look at one complicated problem after another and get the right answer. But you know, if you're in a position of leadership and that can be running a big company, it can be in charge of a task force. Uh, something funny happens. 
you know, in good organizations, problems get delegated downwards, okay? They get broken into pieces, they go to specialists, they go to people who have P&L responsibility or whatever. The funny thing is that complicated problems get delegated upwards. These are the problems that are messy, they affect the whole organization, there are a lot of missing facts, and there might be some brilliant people who can look at one of these big, messy, gray area problems and say, well, do this, do that. I wouldn't bet on my being one. With all due respect, I wouldn't bet on you being one. I think these folks are pretty rare. And if you look at how outstanding managers and executives make decisions, they work the problem, okay? Often with other people, they get data, they get expert judgment, they they analyze, sometimes they fight. At the end of the day, somebody's got to make a decision, but they've struggled with the complexity. And by the way, you know, I mentioned this classic view of reflection, extended periods of time. It's usually solitary. And I'd say about a third of the people I interviewed said they did their best reflection with somebody else. So, after they'd worked a problem with a team or an executive team or whatever, they got to make a decision. They had somebody that they trusted, respected, they could kind of bounce things off of. Then of course, you've got to decide. And they decided. But th this is another often neglected aspect of reflection. It's the social part of it. And sometimes you need to really spend time, but mosaic reflection in some cases just meant, gee, I don't know what to do about this HR problem. And you go down the hall and talk to somebody for five minutes, 10 minutes, who's got good judgment. Then you come back and make the decision. But it's not solitary, but you do have to work the problem and you often work it with other people. And if I had to give advice or speculate, I'd say that's what the really outstanding people do. Yeah, I, I always find it very helpful to ask a lot of different people their opinions and then get them all together and then think about what makes sense out of all that. I always think it's kind of a mistake to move forward in a complex problem just on your own judgment without getting a lot of input and having people see the different uh, at different levels. Are, yeah. are there significant differences in how introverts and extroverts practice reflection? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I laugh because there's a book uh, I read and then my wife read a couple of years ago by called Quiet by a woman, her first, her first name is Susan. I don't recall her last name. She has a great TED talk. Introversion and extroversion, I learned from the book, are sort of fundamental psychological features. And it's a spectrum, okay? But we're all somewhere on that spectrum and some more at the end, more, more at the other end. And it's a profound difference. And I would speculate that there's a big difference. Uh, so I have one daughter who is, after I read this book, we realized that she was an obvious extrovert. She just, she needed when she was like 10 years old, she said to go get a people fix. Uh, she just needed to be out there getting stimulation from other people. And my guess is that extroverts do a lot of their thinking in the vortex of these relationships with, with other people. Introverts can only take so much stimulation and then they need to retreat. If you 
look at people at parties, the difference, the extroverts are right in the middle of the activity. The introverts might be having private conversations on the side. So my guess is that they do decide very differently because their minds just work very differently at maybe at this fundamental level. And I'd recommend to you, if you haven't done it already, and uh, Susan Kane is her name, I'd have a look at her uh, TED Talk. It's like 20 minutes. You'll rethink yourself and the people you know uh, <laughs> after you've read it or watched it. Joe, if you have a chance, just tap it into the chat and everybody will know. Sure. That's awesome. Sure. Uh, so uh, one of the things I wondered is, is that from all the students you've had over the years, and you mentioned Jamie Diamond, could you tell the ones that you thought have real high upside because they seem to you to be reflective? I mean, over time, did you say to yourself, you know what, this Jamie Diamond, this guy's going to go far. I mean, even though you're at Harvard and everybody is supposed to be, quote unquote, a superstar, there's, pro there's only a handful that really become super uh, leaders and significant business uh, leaders and entrepreneurs. Over time, could you spot them out in your classes when you look back? I can't say that I can. So uh, the very first class I taught was really unusual. I taught a lot of classes. So it had Jamie Dimon. Uh, it had a guy uh, uh, named Seth Klarman, who has been one of the great private investors of the last 20 years. He's sort of like a Warren Buffett that no one knows much about. And he's only worth about a third as much as Buffett is worth, which is not, not a bad record. We'll send him money. <laughs> yeah. And another guy uh, became the CEO of T. Rowe Price. Um, you know, if anything, all three of them were just a little on the quiet side. They weren't the sort of gregarious, ranging the parties, doing stuff. Okay. So there, there might have been, in hindsight, that's a big qualification, a reflective element that if I could go back and look more closely, I might have detected. But the other thing is, I think I've had a lot of students over the years, and we have a lot of somewhat introverted students at Harvard Business School. We don't want people who are just extroverts. Um, I think some of the more reflective people may not have gotten on the path to success or went part of the way down the path to success, did some reflecting and said, I've done, you know, I'm kind of happy with where I am. We've got a good life, good family, and not tried to get to the top where you get your name in the business press or on social media. And finally, there's just a hell of a lot of luck involved in being really successful. And, uh, you know, uh, people like Jamie, you know, they're super smart guys. Um, but he made, and he made some good decisions, but some lucky decisions early in his career. It's a little like coming back to Musk and SpaceX. You know, it's a little like launching a, a rocket. And the, the, the launch angle can make a big difference to the uh, ultimate orbit. I always tell my kids, and I, I taught 10 years at Wharton, that 50% uh, of it is showing up, 25% is being smart, but the most important 25% is getting lucky. Getting and, lucky. Yeah, and I've heard Bill Gates and Warren Buffett all say, things could have just gone the other way, and I had no control over any of that. And I think when you look back that some of the great successes 
have been introverts. Bill Gates, I would say, is yeah. more introvert. I would say Mark Zuckerberg is more introverted. I think when you start to look back, Einstein was certainly very introverted. Uh, wouldn't give his thoughts out until he absolutely knew for sure and wasn't very uh, gregarious. Friendly, but not gregarious. Um, in the book, one manager said the, uh, said the practice reflection, but don't uh, set a specific time. Is it possible to set a specific time in today's world for reflection? You know, put that on your calendar. It's very hard to do. You have to be extraordinarily disciplined. I, out of 100 people, there were a small handful who said they did it, and I didn't have any reason not to believe them. I think typically they got up early and just, and, and once you make something a habit, it's a lot easier to continue doing. But with family travel, back in the days when people traveled, uh, that, that's really hard to do. That's why one of the things I emphasize early in the book is what I called good enough reflection. And uh, the idea is if you're reflecting fairly often and you're doing a pretty good job, whether it's in terms of this, uh, you know, downshifting or pondering or measuring up, and you feel like you're making some progress, pat yourself on the back, declare victory. There's this old saying I like a lot, which is the better is the enemy of the good or the perfect is the enemy of the good. And if you've got an approach that works pretty well most of the time, that's great. And that's what a lot of the managers said they did. You know, they had their own idiosyncratic way of doing it, but they couldn't do it every day or even regularly. Life just doesn't per permit that. How can one stop from overcommitting when so much uh, interests them and they have so many obligations? <laughs> well, it's not a bad problem to have, to be curious and interested in so many things going on around you. And I know we're all supposed to be critical of social media and internet addiction and all the rest, but just an amazing world of fascinating things and people you can learn about out there. Uh, I think you need to reflect and you need to step back. And this is in terms of sort of measuring up, like in the, it's in terms of your standards. You have to ask what is really important to you? Uh, what is it that over the next couple weeks or couple months or couple of years really important for you to do? Reflection is measuring up is about what you do and what you don't do. And then you've got to use this as kind of a rough criterion. The, this is what I really want to do. And so there's some fascinating things. It'd be a lot of fun I'm not going to do and others I'm really going to focus on. Uh, but again, it's stepping back. It's looking longer term that what's really important. And by the way, by measuring up, I mean standards. I mean trying to be specific, as specific as possible that this is what I want to accomplish roughly by when, and I'm going to check from time to time to see if I'm making progress. Otherwise, you just get swept away by the things you have to do and by all these fun things that, uh, that are out there, people and, and, and stuff online. I view the internet, I viewed it for years as just like, a, I've always loved magazines. I should probably read more books, but I love magazines. This is just a giant, endless magazine. Yeah, I, I, I'm a huge reader and I love doing the show because I'm reading two business books a week because I'm yeah. interviewing two authors a week. And 
Actually, I always tell um, guests, there, I have three favorite magazines. One is Inc., because I like to hear yeah. the stories of the entrepreneurs. Another is Fast Company. But my absolute favorite is the Harvard Business Review. And the reason it's my favorite is because of all the research that is yeah. in there. I find the research to be like super fascinating and it charges up my brain. Like uh, I'm on fire after reading these stories. Like uh, I'm thinking about all kinds of new ideas and then putting them on paper and then narrowing down what I might focus on. Well, uh, let me just that, add yeah. quickly to that, Mark. I have sort of two filters. I'm not really explicit about them. But one is I just look for interesting ideas and I don't uh -huh. care where they come from, what the pedigree is, what the data is. Just like, wow, I've never thought about that in this way. The other thing that I look for, and I'm more inclined to sort of plunge into, is stuff where I think there is some real data. There's some real evidence. And somebody's looked at it and thought, through, thought it through. And then there's a lot of stuff in the middle, which is kind of interesting, and it's based on a few anecdotes. But it's really like eating a lot of candy. And you know, a little candy is fine, but I try to look for the provocative or the stuff that's really got some real serious thought and, and data behind it. Well, that's why I love the Harvard Business Review. I always recommend to everybody. How much time, you said, you know, I asked about you know, day to day, but should you think about, say to yourself, you know, try to put 15 minutes, even in total during the course of the week yeah. to do some reflection. So is there any of that type of thinking that, you know, like, should you say to yourself, look, uh, just like you try to do so much steps, right? Everybody tries to get 5,000, 10,000 steps. Should you set a goal for yourself in reflection? Well, one, one of the people I interviewed said five minutes a day, an hour a week, a day a year. Okay, so put aside those chunks of time. And I think that's roughly right. One of the things I emphasize in the book and give a lot of examples in the book is the importance of customizing what you do, you know, to your life and to your responsibilities and your pressures. But if you don't get in five or 10 minutes a day, and this can be driving to work, it can be before you fall asleep at night, it can be talking with a partner, that just means you're completely immersed. And that's risky. It's like, you know, being on a a river that's a torrent and you just kind of get swept away an hour a week uh what i say at the end of the book is that it's important from time to time to step back further and that means beyond little chunks five minutes here ten minutes there there's some problems in life and at work that you just can't really reflect on enough in a short period of time so Take a longer period of time, an hour, half an hour, whatever it is, once a week, twice a week, try to make that happen. And then I don't know about a day a year, uh, but he, and I'm not sure this guy did it, but he threw it in there and it, it sounded kind of good. So I've repeated <laughs> it. One of the questions we have, did you look at any of the works of Carl Chung uh, when you wrote your book? He wrote the book, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Is Chung's reflections the same as the type you were referring to? No, I'm sorry, I didn't, so I can't answer the question. Uh, so let's go to the next one. How, sure. do, how do you not, uh, how do you feel not guilty taking time to reflect? I mean, I kind of think like, <laughs> you know, you, you have this great sense of guilt, like I should be typing, doing uh, things. And 
geez, if I actually take the time to reflect, and I, I do feel guilty about it, and I still try to do it, but I feel guilty about it. My girlfriend, she's great. Every day she meditates and spends time reflecting. She starts her day with that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a really good question. The standard explanation of why people don't reflect enough is that we're just too busy. And then we spend too much of what little free time we have on media to which we are addicted. That's the conventional wisdom. And I'm not saying that's, that's wrong. But a lot of people don't reflect as much as they should because they have serious responsibilities and they want to meet them. People at work are expecting them to get things done, move things along, family, you know, lots of stuff. Okay. And they do feel bad when they stop to reflect. And so the answer to that is to realize that if you take these moments, tell yourself maybe repeatedly, that if you take the time to step back and reflect, you're going to do a better job of meeting your responsibilities. You're going to be clearer about what they are. You're not going to be distracted by a lot of peripheral stuff. You might have a better sense of how to execute or make good on them. Uh, rather than just moving ahead kind of on autopilot with a checklist and feeling good about knocking it off, but a sense of responsibility actually is a barrier to reflection. Uh, you mentioned the book about people's need to show they have accomplished something. Don't you think global competitiveness and technology allows you to 24 seven? You feel good if you stop to take the time to think. So you were just uh, referring to that now. And is, is there apps or anything that you've seen out there that help people slow themselves down, just like the Fitbit gets you to walk and everything? Or maybe well, that's a new product for you to develop. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen the app, but as I think back over the interviews, and some of this is actually in the book in the form of examples, there's a big connection, I think, between what you do physically and what happens mentally. So a clear example of how to slow down was one woman who ran a huge staff in her organization. This is the staff part, not the operating part, was 1,500 people. I remember reading and, that. And of course, standard practice would be for people to come up to, come to her office, line up outside, she'd have meetings, get stuff done. Um, what she would do from time to time is decide that she was going to go to somebody else's office and she'd put aside extra time to get there. And she would consciously walk there slowly. And the idea wasn't to manage by walking around. It was just to slow down. Another guy had to move on his corporate campus from his CFO office to the office where he would go to meetings with the C CEO and some other people. He would sometimes put in five minutes to take a slower route. If you think of classic reflection, Prayer, for example, in many traditions, you kneel or you adopt a lotus position or some other physical position. Even going back to the venture capitalist I quoted, feet on the desk, looking out the window, you need to find something physical that's not at your keyboard looking at the screen or in a meeting, a Zoom meeting, or I hope we get back to meetings with real people soon that sort of breaks you physically out of that 
and that sort of works on your mind. One one guy in the switch in, in the in the book said people think you can come home and just flip a switch and stop your mental processes. And he said, no, you've got to do something different physically. In the old days, you know, the old stereotypical days, the fifties, you came home and had a couple martinis. Maybe there was something to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we have to start that all over again. But you know what I, I find, and this is a comment just based on what you were just talking about, going to church, synagogue, a mosque, or other religious facilities forces you to reflect because there's usually no phones no laptops, iPads, or meetings. When I, I'm Jewish and I go to high holiday services, I really spend like most of the time reflecting, right? like three, four hours at a pop uh, reflecting on things. Uh, should people consider a bigger investment in religion as a way to slow life down and get perspective? As a general proposition, yes. And I say that as somebody who was raised religious, but I'm not. Um, absolutely. Uh, religions, and I generalize here, virtually every religion has been working on this problem of reflection from the beginning. And that's because they're aware that human beings are fallen creatures, uh, that we're easily seduced and tricked or just make mistakes, and that there are really big important things we ought to be thinking about. And so in a variety of ways, religions have worked out solutions to that problem. That said, I'm not certain that being actively religious today is a guarantee of reflection. Uh, so the Quaker approach to reflection, as I understand it, I wasn't raised as a Quaker, but one of my daughters went to a Quaker school for four years, um, is you just sit quietly for an hour, okay? And that's different from some other religions where you've got somebody talking, you've got people around you singing, you're engaged in conversations with them. Uh, it may just be a, an immersion in another kind of experience that doesn't like, maybe you do a little more reflecting in your car after you've been in some of these really active religious ceremonies. I can't speak for other people. I'm speculating there, but uh, you don't want, your religious experience to be just as busy and managed and intense as your work experience and the rest of your life experience, I don't think. I found when I go to synagogue, I do actually do a lot more reflecting there. My mind wanders off from the prayers itself and just thinks about other, other mm -hmm. things. And I kind of think that everything is really slowed down and there's nobody approaching you about anything or the feel, the need to feel that you should pick up the remote control, have the TV going while you're reading your Kindle and, and all the things simultaneously. Yes. Um, exercise like riding a bike, running or swimming seems like ideal, those three things for reflection. What has your research found about the value of exercise related to reflection? You talked a little bit about it. Well, I was surprised at how many people, and I would say out of 100 people, maybe 20, said they reflected while they were exercising. I was especially surprised because I still try to do a little bit of running and I'm just trying to keep going. And the, the possibility that I will think about anything uh, while I'm engaged in what sometimes is sort of acute suffering and masochism is zero, okay? <laughs> but a number of people found that doing something physical 
sort of freed up their minds. It was like they put their bodies on sort of autopilot and their mind was partially supervising this. And then part of their mind was sort of freed up from processing immediate tasks and problems. And a few people were actually sort of systematic about it. So these were people who were pretty good runners. And they'd say, I'm going to run for half an hour. And maybe the first few minutes, I'm just going to try to get into a good rhythm. Or maybe I'm going to listen to a little music. And then they would stop and they would have a problem or a question that they wanted to think about for a little while. And they'd try to do that. And they didn't say when they finished the run, they had an answer, but they said sometimes they had sort of a different perspective on it. And they thought that they had made some progress. So this comes back to this, to what we were talking about a moment ago, the need to change what you do physically to break out of the intense work focus process your life pattern and try to free up your mind a little bit. And for some people, one form of not necessarily exercise, it could be walking, lots of cooking for a few people. It's just a different kind of physical activity. And I'd also add it was often driving. Now, this sounds reckless, but you know, for a lot of people, driving is creeping in commuting traffic. And uh, again, they were very conscious. One guy had a writing pad uh, in the front seat of his car where he would jot down notes when he could. Another would pick up his iPhone and dictate things, but they found the period between the end of work and getting home a good time to sort of decompress and sort of work through some things and try to capture thoughts that they didn't have during the day when they were working. So. Yeah, I like the notes part on my Samsung phone. I'm constantly putting one sentence in about this, a reminder about different things. What is uh, piggyback reflection and how does that work? Well, we've been talking about that. Piggyback reflection is basically trying to reflect or noticing that you do reflect while you are ostensibly doing something else. Okay? Uh, the something else cannot be sort of completely captivating and engaging. It has to be something that you can sort of, in computer language, have running in the background. So it's exercising, it's driving, cooking these things. But the reflecting is sort of piggy, or listening to music for some people. For a few people, it was reading. Uh, and typically, I mean, one, one individual said he really liked to read biographies and autobiographies. And he said that was reflection for him because he often found himself thinking, gee, if I was in this situation, he'd sort of stop reading and his mind would naturally turn to the question of, gee, if I was in this situation, what would I do? Or would I have done that? But again, I really want to emphasize there was no right way. There were like, out of 100 people, 90 different patterns or mosaics that helped them step back, pulled them back, and gave them these moments of quiet or pondering or measuring up. Um, how does the right conversation, the determined right, what does that mean? <laughs> good question. Very good question. I think you just sort of know. You know, there's, there's just a few people that I think most people know, I hope most people know, where 
they have a feeling when they're with them, their, their, their blood pressure's going down a little bit. And it's okay to sort of slump in the chair a little bit. Or maybe it's okay to do a little more complaining or whining or something like that. And uh, you can go from there to something that's on your mind. And you're not necessarily going to be met with a quiz on, you know, why do you think that? What's the evidence? Or they're not going to sort of briefly process what you're telling them and then tell you what you should do. Uh, the person may just be kind of a sounding board. Uh, but I hope and I think a lot of people have somebody that they can basically reflect aloud with. Uh, and actually, coming back to religion for a moment, in many religious traditions, reflection isn't group activity, you know, in a, in a temple or in a church, and it isn't solitary activity. It's counseling with a wise or respected counselor, a rabbi, a priest, a minister. Uh, so there is this element of dialogue with the right sort of person that is a reflective conversation. And again, that's not solitary, extended, I'm going to consult my own soul. It sort of recognizes that your own soul may be wrong, confused, may need some guidance, and you can get it from somebody else. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, downshifting before. You know, you mentioned that yeah. as a concept. What's the importance of downshifting? Well, it serves a variety of purposes. Uh, the fundamental one across the board is you just, you're paying closer attention to, as I said, what's going on inside you or around you. And, you know, there are a lot of meetings where, especially if you're running the meeting, you're often behind on your agenda. You've got somebody, you know, who's seemed to be sort of diverting the agenda, talking too long. These are standard problems. And you're just focused on getting things done. And you might not be noticing that a person that, pretty thoughtful person in the back of the room, seems to have something on their mind. And, uh, you might really want to hear from them because you're distracted or you're just trying to move things along. And this downshifting in the, in the context of a meeting is just, you know, letting people talk for a little bit, looking around a little bit, where have we been? Do we really have to cover everything that I think we have to cover? Uh, and just relying on your sort of intuition and your instinct, but you've got to slow down a little bit to sort of let that happen. The same thing is true in conversations with, with other people. You know, I think most people watching are managers. Management is great. It's one of three or four things that have taken human beings all out of caves and created this amazing world we live in right now. But managing everything as a way of life and as a way of handling relationships and always be thinking of objectives, process, execution, and sort of having a mental, uh, uh, you know, moving assembly line, that's a problem. And so that's why you really need time to let your mind meander and see what's going on. There are other benefits. Uh, often that's when creative sparks uh, appear because you're not processing task after task. Uh, 
it's often when you remember something that's been gnawing at you and it comes into consciousness, something that you've been trying to avoid that you really ought to pay a little attention to. So in a way, this downshifting, it, it, to move away from the mechanical, the automotive metaphor, it's a little bit like taking the lid off your mind, but maybe pushing a lot of things down. See what comes up. I got to believe it also, after hearing you describe this, that it also would reduce the amount of burnout. I think yes. Um, there, I th but I think dealing with burnout is really a t is a big problem. So I think it's a step in the right direction. But if you think you're dealing with burnout or somebody you know is dealing with burnout, that requires more significant sort of intervention um, than just sort of five minutes of mental meandering and, and letting your mind go and seeing what comes up. Well, that's a good lead into my next question, and, and, right. and that is, talk about the value of uh, mental meandering. Well, uh, first, it's unavoidable, okay? So don't beat yourself up if your mind wanders. Some, our minds seem to be programmed uh, by evolution to do that. Secondly, there was, there's a series of studies that have been done by cognitive scientists over the last 20 years. And what was discovered about 20 years ago that a lot of our brains seem to be inactive most of the time. They're sort of like dark matter. But when you are daydreaming, this part of your brain, and it's physically, it seems to be like three quarters of your brain, give or take, is somehow sort of activated. And that's where we process memories, we think about ongoing problems. We may do some kinds of creative work. So this mental meandering may be sort of a very important way of letting our brains process things. If you want to take an evolutionary approach to this, imagine two kinds of pre-human creatures. And one was sort of continuously engaged in immediate activities, okay? And the other occasionally let his or her mind wander a little bit, step back and process things. Which one is more likely to survive and reproduce and evolve into us? I think it's the second. Because the second created a little slack time, you know, to start thinking about, do we have enough food? Are we vulnerable to these predators? How do we do a counterattack? Uh, who in the tribe needs to be pushed out of the tribe because this is some alpha male who's disturbing everything. Uh, immediate continuous engagement probably is something that is bad for us from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, and again, I would come back to, uh, I'll try to make this the final time, the venture capitalist who said, if I catch you looking out the window, I'm going to double your salary. Uh, he's saying basically those are the moments when you're going to be, you're not going to be fighting fires anymore. Or for a productive. Yeah. Or decide, decide which fires you got to fight. Um, and, you know, and as you, as you know, those people listening and as you know, Mark, in an entrepreneurial business, you've often got to pivot. And that's a big deal. And knowing when and thinking about how, 
you got to step back to think about that. And that's stepping back. You can do a little downshifting. Is there something about this business that we're doing now? I just don't think it's working. It's bothering me. Well, stop. Let your mind meander. See if you can grab onto that. And then once you've grabbed onto it, try to look at it from a variety of different perspectives. That's pondering. And then if you think you've got something, then I move to the, what I call measuring up. What are the standards we got to meet? And what do we do to meet those standards with this new approach? So that's to say that you can do each one of these forms of classic reflection separately, but they're all, they're, it's also pretty good to do them in sequence because meandering, you know, downshifting, it frees up your mind. It makes it easier to look at things from a variety of different perspectives. And then if you're a manager and you got to get things done, you move to the final phrase phase of how do I do it in a way that meets what I'm expected to do. So the three things have kind of a natural flow if you've got the time to do it. Uh, you mentioned here uh, about the importance to celebrate. Talk about the importance yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a it, it relates directly to a lot of what we've been talking about uh, this one guy I talked to was under a hell of a lot of pressure when we spoke and you could just sort of feel it. And he started talking about Japanese just-in-time management and improvement engineering and, the, uh, and Kaizen, which is always do things better and better and better. And he said he was of two minds about that. He said it was a great way to run a business. You know, every day you want to try to have your salespeople, operating people do things better and better but he said it can be a horrible way to live. And he said, what you need to make a conscious effort to do is to stop and with other people or by yourself, look at things you've accomplished and let yourself say, great, that was hard. I did that. Not learn lessons from it, okay? Not plan on doing it, but just appreciate what you have accomplished. And, uh, I think he said, just sort of pat yourself on the back for a few minutes. You know, reflection is often viewed as this serious, somber, sort of hair shirt type of activity. Where have we screwed up? Where am I falling short? Uh, and this guy was saying it, it doesn't have to be and shouldn't be that way. Another individual I spoke to said uh, it facetiously that when he started his own church, it was going to be a church that did a lot of celebration because a lot of people were working hard and accomplishing a lot and they never stopped and gave themselves enough credit for it. And he said that was a really important form of, of reflection. I tell and, I, and I agree. I agree with that too. I, I'm 59 now. And I tell my daughter when she has a, a, I have two daughters like you do, like you do, or you have maybe more daughters than two. But I tell um, one of my daughters who's been very successful in business, stop, take a moment and celebrate that success. Go and to, you know, have um, Mexican food or whatever. Yeah. Go with your husband and go to the beach. But take the time because we're so busy trying to get to the next accomplishment, the next accomplishment that we really don't take the time to enjoy what you just uh, did accomplish. Yes. Um, uh, here's my uh, final question. Well, I have two. I think we can fit two more questions in. Sure. Uh, one question is, what are anchoring questions and how do they help? Hmm. Well, anchoring questions are an approach to pondering. 
to looking at things from a variety of different perspectives. And some people did that in a somewhat systematic way. So if somebody was going to make a big decision like uh, taking another job that involved moving into another city, or they were going to make a major change in their business operation, one anchor in question was how it wasn't, it was more of an anchor in command. Imagine what this is going to look like day by day, hour by hour. So if you build this new facility or you move to this city, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? What's your commute to work? Who are you going to be meeting with? What are their agendas going to be? Are you going to like it? So it's concretizing. That's taking something you might do, looking at it in as concrete a way as possible. At the other end of the, of the uh, spectrum were people who said, you know, what I want to do sometimes on these big decisions is not look at them from my perspective. I want to try to imagine how it looks from the perspective of somebody that I admire or somebody I think of as a role model or somebody I really trust. And how would they look at this decision? What would they think is important about this situation? And that might be different from something that I isolate there. Another question I think I touched on already briefly, you've got an issue, you want to expand your perspectives on it, downshift a little bit, look out the window a little bit and say, ask you, is there something that bothers me about this situation? Uh, if you had a conversation with somebody, they proposed something, said, I think it was a good idea. And if you're having second thoughts, another anchoring question is there's something that bothers me about this. Once again, you got to find your own. But on issues that you want to get right, you don't want to do the first thing that occurs to you. You want to, you know, sort of like somebody, a woodworker, you know, with a lathe or something like that. You want to turn it over in your mind. All right. So here's my final question. By the way, I wish I would have had you in school. You sound like a, a really interesting uh, professor and just listening to you talk, it's fantastic. Uh, what did you learn from this uh, writing of this book that you didn't realize before? Like, even though you've had all these experiences, you wrote yeah. this book and now you look back and said, here's what I actually learned from it. Yeah, two things. First, I, this mosaic approach to reflection is one of the things I really did learn and appreciate and I try to pay more attention to it for myself. The other thing I realized uh, was how really thoughtful these managers were. And uh, it's funny, you know, I teach at a business school, we work on management problems, we want to have outstanding managers who graduate. And that's thinking about your goals and how you get things done and after action reviews, all the standard stuff. But it was almost like there was this second track going on in, in these folks' minds. And when I asked what seemed to me, what seemed to them initially like an odd question, do you reflect and what is it? And uh, a question I wasn't sure that I have answers to, we had really good conversations. They were really thoughtful about this. And uh, I'd like to try to create more opportunities where you know, I think this is the advantage of the good old days when people went out to lunch or when life was just different. You had these opportunities to tap into the experience and wisdom of other people rather than uh, 
you know, work on whatever the problem is or whatever you're trying to build. So uh, there's a lot of thoughtfulness that people have that's bottled up. I think it's even tougher though to get access to it given how we live these days. Well, I want to say thank you so much. And I, 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 hope maybe, I hope maybe you'll send me some of your other books so I can look at them and have you back because I, I really like this particular book. I thought it was well done. I think we all walked away a lot, getting a lot of good things from it. So I may I, have written the same book over and over again. So, <laughs> so that book's probably enough. But. <laughs> Last one might be the best one. Well, Joe, it was a pleasure meeting you. And thanks for nice uh, you, the time you spent with us. And have a safe weekend. Good. Same to you. Same to everybody. Everybody have a great weekend. Look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye.